Debunking the Idiocy of Coincidence Theorists with me, Robert Larson, on Out the Rabbit Hole, Fridays, 3 to 4 p.m., KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. This is Jake Bacon, and it's now time for the Privacy Piracy Show with Mari Frank. And now, here's Mari Frank. Hi there. We have a wonderful show tonight. We're very pleased to also have Jake Bacon helping out, and thank you, Jake, for joining me. And Jake has heard enough about privacy himself that he's getting scared also. Tonight, we are speaking with a gentleman all the way from Texas. He is a startup veteran who's been delivering innovative technology solutions to the financial industry for over 15 years. Back in 2004, uh, Bo Holland founded Debix and currently serves as its CEO. Holland was previously founder and CEO of Works Incorporated, which was acquired by the Bank of America in 2005. And... I can tell you that Bo has done some tremendous things. We're going to talk about a great survey that he's done that's revealed some very secret information that uh, was even news to the Federal Trade Commission. Um, prior to works, Holland served as director in product marketing for Pervasive Software and was instrumental in turning the company around and taking it public. And, and prior to Pervasive, Holland joined Citrix Systems um, and uh, was instrumental in developing the WinFrame product line. He is quite adept at technology, and, and he's learned a tremendous amount of information about privacy and identity theft in recent years. You can learn more about him at our website at, at uh, KUCI.org slash privacypiracy and also at dabix.com. Bo, thank you for joining us all the way from Texas. How Glad are you? Glad to be here, Mari. Yeah. How did you get interested in identity theft? Well, it actually came as a part of my last project at Works. We were spending a lot of time down in the payment infrastructure looking at how payments were made on credit cards. And as I came to understand how it really worked and uh, my background in database and operating systems, security was always top of mind. And um, there wasn't nearly the level of security that I expected. And so I started poking around and uh, just put a little note in the back of my head that this is going to be a problem one day when the bad guys figure out how all this stuff works. And... Uh, so I had the chance to get started working on it full-time and uh, jumped on it. And sure enough, the uh, the bad guys have begun figuring this out. So, Yes, and, you know, it isn't just the bad guys. I think what's interesting is you can see that some of the systems, even though the c- credit card companies and the credit bureaus may have their heart in the right place, there's so much technology and confusion that goes on that lots of times they facilitate this crime. Um, one of the things that we've talked about on this show many times is identity theft and telling people to put a fraud alert on. 
And we've always told people, make sure that when you put a fraud alert on your credit report, which says, don't issue credit without calling me first at this number, that um, that they call all three companies, even though the new law says that you only have to call one of the credit bureaus and they will contact the other two. And you've done a, a great fraud alert study um, just to find out what really is going on. So tell us about this research and uh, what you did and what your goal is, and tell us all about that. Okay. Well, we got started on this because uh, the original premise for our, our product and company here was to add some convenience and some additional security to the fraud alert system. So we think it's a great idea. Um, the infrastructure is already there and the laws are in place. Uh, it's the one capability or the one right and protection that's available to all Americans. So it's a great starting place. And, you know, like you said, it's the number one recommendation by the FTC, by you, Mari Frank, by the Privacy Rights Org, um, on down the list, the Identity Theft Resource Center. So everybody recommends that mechanism, so we began building on top of it. Um, what we quickly found out was it, it didn't work as expected. And since we're dealing in software and computers, it has to work just a certain way, and it needs to be reliable in order for us to do what we do. And we started poking around and found a number of problems and uh, ultimately realized that, gosh, we, we've got a real issue here. We needed to back up, figure out you know, what the problems were, how broad the problems were. And so we put together this idea of, of doing a test and then came to find out that uh, as we were asking people to help, there was a lot of interest in finding out how the thing worked and how reliable it was. Nobody had published any information. There's no reporting on it available from the credit bureaus. Um, so we uh, recruited about 90 people from the security and privacy world. We asked them to uh, participate in this study by setting fraud alerts on their files and then by going to open credit accounts. So that was uh, how we got started in this. It was great, and I was part of that program, and I helped show how it fails. Yes, <laughs> not, not, you're, your, you're, not what you do, but, but how the, the fraud alert fails. That's what was so, I think, fascinating, because I joined in, and I was interested in what was going on, too. So you, you ended up having um, consumers and fraud people from across the country. And let me just explain to people who are listening why the fraud alert is so important. Uh, a lot of people want to put a fraud alert on their credit report if they're afraid that someone might be opening up accounts in their name. And if, if the fraud alert on your credit report has a signal that says, don't issue credit without calling me first at this number, and you give your cell phone number or you give your home number, then you're going to rely or hope that the creditors, before they issue credit, that they'll really call you. And that you'll really know. And and so even if you're not a victim, you want to know that. And especially if you've been the victim of a breach, right, Bo? Exactly. So so tell tell us what happened with you ended up, I think, with your fifty three consumers, right? That helped you get this started? Correct. So a not a huge group, not a big sample size. We'll be expanding this going forward, but the data we found even at a at a small number of fifty three was pretty uh, compelling. Um, the things that we found, the good news was that the fraud alerts are surprisingly effective at uh, uh, preventing fraud and protecting both the consumer and the creditor when they're set properly. So we found very good compliance amongst the creditors. Um, we weren't sure what we would find there, but uh, we tested about 15 different creditors. And uh, these were sort of the largest creditors in the auto space, uh, telecommunications, um, credit card, and just general consumer loans. And uh, everyone honored the fraud alerts. Uh, we had a couple of cases where they were ignored, but uh, I think it's a matter of um, poor training versus, 
you know, company policy or, or a lack of desire on the creditor's part to do the right thing. Let's and, step back for just a second, Bo, because I, I want to talk about the how you um, the, the the test parameters. What you did, you had each consumer who participated. Um, they set their fraud alert at one bureau, right? Meaning correct. they called up the the toll free number and said, "Here's my you know here's the number that I would like you to set right." Or sure. did they use they use the debit number? Was that right? The debit debex number. Uh, yes, we actually used our uh, our product, our iLike platform, to instrument this test so we could see what was happening. So we had the consumers use our software to actually set their fraud alerts. And what our software did was then went out to one bureau, and just as the FTC says, as all the advice says, go to one bureau, set your fraud alert, and then the bureaus are very clear. They tell the consumer multiple times, uh, do not call the other bureaus. We will communicate this fraud alert to them, and it will be set. Right. So this was a key piece of the infrastructure that we were testing uh, because we'd seen some unreliability around that. And what we found was after these 53 people went through the process, 39% of the time these fraud alerts failed to actually get set at the other two bureaus. Right, and that happened with me, right? Because you, you had us each confirm if the fraud alert went to all three bureaus, and indeed it, it didn't. With me, so this went to you know this was clearly showing that when you're what you're told about putting a fraud alert on one and the other two bureaus will set it also is not necessarily the case, right? That is correct, and the you know that in itself is a pretty big failure at uh, at nearly forty percent of the time. That's pretty unacceptable. Uh, but worse, the consumer is not told that it failed. We only had one instance where the credit bureau sent a notification to a consumer acknowledging that they had received a, a request from the other bureau to set a fraud alert, but could not. All the other times, all the other cases, um, the failure was, you know, wasn't communicated to the consumer. So here you've got people who've experienced a breach. They're concerned about their identity and their credit. They do what the authorities and the experts tell them to go do, but they end up without the protection um, that they believe they have just set. And that, that's actually a worse situation than, uh, than where you began. Exactly, and and that's what they're they're relying on it when they make that call, that the other two bureaus are also going to know, and then they feel a little bit safer. Well, gee, before my fraudster or the bad guy goes to call and get a new credit card or a credit line, that or a loan, that I'm going to be called first, and if it's not set and they don't know about it, they can't protect themselves, right? Exactly, and. You know, the reason that's important that it gets to all three bureaus is that typically a creditor will have a uh, a relationship with one bureau. So a particular bank, a particular merchant. Mortgage company. You bet. They'll pull from one bureau. And if the fraud alert is not set at that bureau, they will never see it. Uh, they don't pull from all three bureaus. So if, uh, if any one of the three misses your fraud alert, then you have exposure. Exactly. And people don't realize that these creditors are buying your credit reports. So that's why, especially the smaller companies, won't buy all three, right? Isn't that the reason? Yes, it's expensive. Yeah. Okay, so then um, the next thing you did was to try and find out what? You were trying to find out um, how, you know, how the creditors were honoring the fraud alert and how the, the whole process was working, right? Exactly. So once the alerts were set and we understood, you know, who was broken and who wasn't, we went to the folks who had been able to successfully set their alerts 
and we asked them to go open two credit accounts each. So they would go apply for either a mortgage loan, a credit card, um, whatever their assignment was. Um, typically, we applied for these things either online or over the telephone, and uh, you know, asked people to spend. Uh, it took about 15 minutes for these different processes. And effectively, what we found was uh, generally very, very good compliance from the creditor side. And again, if you think about that, um, I actually thought that was probably the harder part of the equation, given that this is a, a relatively new law, and there aren't really strong um, penalties if creditors don't comply. Right. So we were sort of uh, suspecting that maybe compliance wouldn't be so good, but we're pleasantly surprised. Uh, we were seeing you know, 80% compliance, um, and it's still early in our results on phase two here, but uh, it looks like it's very, very positive, and in the places where we've seen non-compliance, uh, again, it appears to be uh, simple training issues as opposed to some you know, corporate desire to ignore consumers' rights. Uh, so the good news, I think there's, there's very nice alignment between what's good for a creditor and what's good for a consumer here. Um, when fraud does occur, if they do open a fraudulent account, the creditor is the one who has to eat those dollars, not the consumer. Uh, the consumer has the trouble and pain of having to convince the creditor that it is a fraudulent account, right. but the creditor pays for it ultimately. But creditors pay in two ways. They pay both in terms of dollars, um, but they probably pay even more in terms of reputation and customer loss. Um, I can guarantee you if someone opens an account, a fraudulent account in my name, I am very unlikely ever to be a customer of that organization right. or to have anything to do with them. So I think the creditors understand that, and they're going out of their way and doing whatever they can to, uh, uh, to make sure this doesn't happen, particularly when there's a fraud alert there. They're making good, strong efforts. And the good news is that the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act really requires that they pay attention to those fraud alerts and, in other words, give the phone call. Like if you're, if you're a consumer and you haven't applied for credit and you've put that fraud alert, alert on, you want to be called and say, hey, this wasn't me. I don't want you to open that account. And that saves the creditor money like you were talking about, but it also saves the aggravation for the potential victim. So it's it's good news that they're following it. So that was kind of a surprise is to hear that they were doing so well and that the the real problem was at the other end in the beginning that they didn't even get to see it 40% of the time. So that was <laughs> exactly. pretty that was a, a, a surprise here. So the the FTC is is charged with cl the clearinghouse for identity theft under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act and and under uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And I understand that you went to the Federal Trade Commission and you showed them some of these findings. And what was their reaction? Well, they, the reaction was essentially, I, I think we confirmed some of their fears. They had heard evidence and stories here and there about some of these problems. Um, they have never seen quantified data that said, okay, you know, we did these tests uh, through a specific uh, discipline process and were able to produce results. So that was the piece that they had never seen before. I guess I was a little surprised that the credit bureaus don't have any obligation to report back on how the process works, um, but apparently they do not. The, the Federal Trade Commission coordinates the fraud alert system, but it's actually operated by the credit bureaus. Um, and so, again, the, the surprise here is that there's no reporting requirement from the credit bureau side to get back and say, here's what's working and here's what's not working and here's what we're doing to fix the things that are broken. That doesn't seem to exist. So. Uh, this was the first time they've seen hard data on it, um, so I think they were, you know, again, 
fears confirmed, but they were excited that now they had hard data that they could go to the lawmakers, they could go to the credit bureaus, and they could say, look, here are the problems, and you know, we know they're real problems now. Let's work together to get these resolved. I know I thought this was funny, and the, something that you had sent me is that you had compared what the Federal Trade Commission was telling consumers to do versus what the credit bureaus were telling the people to do. And there was a big difference in, in how they said the, uh, the fraud alert and, uh, you know, would work, right, and, and uh, what they were telling people. And they were saying what? Like, I thought one of the things you said about, you know, that you shouldn't put a fraud alert unless you're a victim versus when you want to talk about, about that a little bit. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, there were, there were two major areas of just communication to consumers about fraud alerts and, and what was to be expected that were very different between what the FTC would say and what the uh, credit bureaus would say. And so we just challenged them to say, you know, we don't know which one of these is right, but uh, it needs to be cleared up. So the first question was, who is entitled to a 90-day fraud alert? And if you go to the FTC's website for identity theft, um, basically it says, you know, if you think your identity has been stolen, here's what to do. Right. So it's kind of prevention. But, you know, even if you haven't become a full-fledged victim yet, if you've heard about a breach or if you've lost your wallet or if, you know, something's been stolen from your house, put a fraud alert on, right? Isn't that what they tell you? Exactly. So it, it appears to be a very low bar. Um, if I have any concern and if I, a place where I worked or a bank where I bank or a, you know, I'm a veteran and I hear about a veteran's breach, those could all give me cause to think that my identity has been stolen. And so then I go set a fraud alert. Once you actually set the fraud alert, one of the things that our testers came back with, uh, we had several calls from consumers who felt um, like they had been deceived into doing something wrong. They right. got a letter and I'll read the text to you, the letter from the credit bureau, which said, you know, you have placed this fraud alert on your account because you believe that you are a victim of identity theft. Identity theft occurs when someone uses your name, social security number, date of birth, or other identifying information without authority to commit fraud. That's the opening paragraph of the letter. And again, testers said, whoa, you know, I'm not a victim of fraud. Um, that hasn't happened to me. I just think maybe my identity has been stolen. And so uh, we pointed this out as, you know, that here's a real communication problem. Who is entitled to this 90-day alert? Which one of these is correct? And that needs to be straightened out. Yeah. And, you know, I get so many calls from consumers, Bo, and they say to me, look, I'm really afraid of identity theft. I have people working in my home. I think there's been access to my credit or, you know, my Social Security number, and I just feel very worried. Can't I just put a fraud alert on and, of course, we tell them, yes, that you can only put one on, though, for 90 days because that's what the law says unless you write a letter and you provide a, an identity theft report or a police report and documentation of the fraud. And then if you can do that, you get one for seven years. But otherwise, you only get that 90 days. And that's so frustrating for consumers, I know that you've kind of stepped in and said, well, gosh, why shouldn't they be able to renew it every 90 days? And, and we'll help them do that. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, it doesn't it make sense to be able to really protect yourself, at least from financial fraud? Yeah, there's very, very few other protective products you can buy uh, that only work for 90 days. Um, you know, I have flood insurance. I have home you know, theft insurance. I have auto insurance. 
um, all these things to protect me when something bad happens, and uh, none of them expire after 90 days. Right. You have and, to pay, but, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, a, you know, you look at this and go, why 90 days? Who picked 90 days? And it's still unclear to me who picked 90 days. What is clear is that the fraudsters um, don't operate on a 90-day window. Right. So in terms of the people committing the crime, who are the people we have to worry about, they know that when they steal information, they've got about 21 days on average to get out there, commit as much fraud as they possibly can before anybody is looking. Right. And then they put that data on the shelf, and they wait 12 months before they pick it up and start using it again. So that data, um, that pattern is very clear from uh, work that we do in other groups, monitoring fraud, particularly with online merchants and so forth. And so, you know, the fraudsters are smart, so they don't want to be using the data when it's hot, when the customers are looking, the credit bureaus are looking, the FBI is looking, Mari Frank's looking. Right. They, they will let it cool off, and then they'll come back. So, uh, it, you know, no point at all for 90 days. It doesn't help me. What is possible, and we cleared this uh, or talked about this with the FTC, was is there any problem if I want to keep renewing my 90-day alert? I can do that, right? And they said, certainly. People do it all the time. So it's not that you can't continue the protection of the fraud alert. Um, what it is, though, is a added burden on the consumer that every 90 days you have to call and reset this thing. And, and, and by the way, if you don't do it on the exact 90th day, they won't set it. Did you know that? They, that's, that's another problem that, that uh, people who were potential victims have told me is that, you know, we can't just reset it when it's the 88th day. We have to wait till the 90 days, otherwise they won't reset it. And so it is really, it is a burden. It makes no sense that you can't protect yourself. And, um, it, and, and there's some reasons why that, because the credit bureaus want to be able to sell your information and um it's, it's quite foolish really that they you know the consumer is not protected i thought there were some other interesting things that you um found out about the, a couple things you told me that I, I thought were a little bit surprising and that is the what happens what is the documented downside for the consumer when they set the fraud alert okay you want to talk a little bit about that about the credit score that just shocked me Yes, we had, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, sort of urban myths around these things. And at the same time, if you start comparing documents between, uh, for example, what the FTC says and what uh, credit bureaus say, you find some very stark differences. And what we mean by downside for a consumer is if I put a fraud alert on my uh, credit file, you know, what, what's, what impact am I going to have? Am I going to suffer inconvenience? Am I going to be able to open credit loans? These are the questions that consumers have. So... We looked at the documentation that was out there. Um, on the FTC side, for example, there are no downsides that are disclosed. It just says, go put this fraud alert on, and then creditors will be able to call you, um, and you'll be entitled to free copies of your, your credit report. So that's all it says. So it, it doesn't appear to be a, um, you know, a thing that, that might cause me any trouble at all. If you look at sites, um, and I'll pick on Experian here for a second, um, look at their site. They have uh, advice from Maxine Sweet and information from her that's far different. Uh, it, it provides a number of things that actually turned out to be correct, um, that some of which are uh, sort of scary in tone, uh, indicating that it may become much more difficult to get approved for an application, um, which we found in our study to be false. Uh, it may take more time to get an account open, but it's not in, it's not, uh, uh, it doesn't change your ability to get the account open. It just means that the creditor has got to take additional steps to verify your identity 
it doesn't mean that you may not qualify for a right. loan anymore. You have so, to jump over a couple more hurdles and prove your identity. I mean, even I've had to do that because I've got the seven-year fraud alert, on, you know, and uh, so sometimes when I want to open up a, an account, I'll have to just give a little bit more identification, which, you know, even though it takes me a little more time, I'm actually glad that they're doing that. And, and that's exactly what we heard consumers say in the study is, yes, it was harder to open accounts. You know, instant credit, uh, you know, becomes instant credit plus a few minutes right. uh, to, to verify your identity. And in some cases, it's just a few minutes. In some cases, it might be, you know, uh, 30 minutes or a day. So it definitely adds inconvenience and some additional time. But what you get for investing that additional time is that nobody else can open these loans in your name. So they imply that it may just be difficult to get a, a loan outright, and, um, and that's not really correct from our experience. Uh, the other things they imply are uh, credit scores may go down and so forth. So there's a number of things that the credit bureaus list as reasons you might not want to put a fraud alert on. And so we said, well, let's, let's find out what the downside really is in our testing. And what we came up with was a list of uh, basically five things. There's some others, but these were the five that were, uh, I think, meaningful. The first one that we found that um, I guess was most disturbing was that if you set your alerts at one credit bureau and you provide them all the information they allow in terms of your own contact information, so some of the bureaus will allow you to put in a daytime number and an extension, an evening number and an extension. So if you were to set it through that particular bureau and provide all that information, you would expect that when they propagate that to the other two bureaus that that same information would be available to any creditor that pulled your report. And that um, makes sense because you're told, actually, you know, even when you call and the uh, credit bureau answers the phone, you know, with some voice system, it says, we will call and provide that information. You don't need to call the other two bureaus, but it's really deceptive because it is... Yeah, because of what you found out. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted people to understand that, you know, people reasonably rely on that, right? Exactly. The system tells you, you know, it's collecting this information and then it's making a claim very clearly multiple times that you do not need to call the other bureaus. So problem number one that we spoke about earlier was that the propagation may not work at all and it just fails. And that was 39% of the time, which is <laughs> huge, which it, it didn't work for me. 39% of the time, it just flat fails and drops to the floor, and you're not told about it. Um, this next issue about uh, it actually deletes contact information as your record moves from one bureau to the other. So you may have put in, for example, um, you know, a daytime number and an extension. You work at a large company. Yeah, let's say you work at, at General Motors or, or GE or something. Yeah, you're going to have to have that extension for sure, right? Exactly. So you feel good because you were able to put in that extension. Well, it turns out when your information is propagated to one of the bureaus, uh, they actually delete that extension. <laughs> and so now all that's left is the main number for GM, and any creditor who pulls that file is going to have a very difficult time finding you, uh, particularly if your name is John Smith. Right. <laughs> so the core mechanism that, you know, the best practice around the fraud alert is when you pull a file, a credit file, as a, as a creditor, if you see the fraud alert, call the number associated with that fraud alert. So that number needs to be helpful. It needs to help the creditor get in touch with you. And uh, if this system managed by the credit bureaus cuts out, drops, deletes information about, your, uh, about how to contact you, uh, it makes it impossible or very difficult for the creditor to be able to, uh, uh, to take that step. And then they're either going to go ahead and issue, and it might be a fraudster, or they won't issue, and you're thinking that you're going to get this loan, and you get very frustrated and upset. 
it increases the inconvenience dramatically. Right, so right. That was the second thing we found. The third thing we found was actually credit scores dropping. Um, this was not across the board, but we definitely had a few cases where uh, the credit score dropped upwards of 50 points by putting a fraud alert on the uh, file. Now, that is that was the one that just shocked me when you told me about that, because that clearly, I remember going to a meeting at the Federal Trade Commission in Washington, and we discussed this at, at length, that it will not affect your credit score. And so when you found out differently, that one really shocked me. And I think, you know, to be fair, everyone says it's not going to affect your credit score. Um, these are very complicated systems. And sometimes, you know, one thing pushes on something and, and you get an unexpected result. So I don't believe that anyone intended that fraud alerts would push your credit score down. So I don't think there's anything malicious happening here. I think it's just a very complicated system. And uh, sometimes you put all these pieces together, and if you move one around, uh, like a fraud alert, um, other things that can happen that are unintended consequences. So again, to be clear, we did not see this across the board. We saw this in a few cases, um, but it did in fact happen, and in fact it should never happen. So there should be a safeguard that says, you know, fraud alert goes on, make sure that the credit score does not change, and if it does, go investigate and, uh, and resolve. I think you said also when you were telling me that it was mostly the higher credit scores that, that had the 50-point drop. Is that correct? That is correct. We seem to see it on scores that were above 800. So these were people at the very high end of the credit um, qualification range. So the, the drop in the score didn't particularly affect them. We don't know why it would be just up at that percent of the range. It may be because our sample study was um, small. Right. And we don't have enough data points yet to see it. Right. Uh, so it could be an, an anomaly or it could be something systematic that, you know, this particular bug, I'll just call it a bug, uh, it only affects people with high scores. You know, Bo, it just was so surprising to me in your small study to have so many of these problems, and especially this high percentage not working in that small study. That just uh, goes to show you that it's probably likely that if you had a bigger study, it might be even worse. <laughs> so that was, yeah. that was surprising to me. Let me just introduce you again for a few minutes because uh, people might be driving by and they're just listening and they're saying, this is fascinating. I have to find out who this person is. We are speaking with Bo Holland, a, a great guy and the founder and CEO of Debix. You can find out more about Debix by going to debix.com. They've done a very intriguing study about the fraud alert, and they've done a, a lot of research on identity theft so that they can uh, produce products that are really helpful not only to consumers but to, to companies as well, as well. So let's go back to um, we talked about some of the downsides of these uh, fraud alerts that we didn't know about were really happening. And then the, another one that you told me about that also surprised me was that the credit cards are were being cut off. Explain what you mean by that. Well, we saw, um, again, just one instance, so not cause for alarm across the board. It, uh, it happened early in our study and caused a lot of concern, but we only saw it the one time, where a consumer who had an existing credit card, um, once they placed the fraud alert on their file, their existing credit card stopped working. And uh, we've all had this experience where the credit card company just shuts the card off because they see something unusual, and uh, in theory they're trying to protect you, but it does cause an inconvenience. So this consumer called the credit card company and said, you know, what's up? You know, I'm paid up. I have some big bills I need to pay next. Uh, what's the problem? And the answer that came back was, well, we noticed a fraud alert um, appeared on your credit file. 
So this bank was actually monitoring the credit file to monitor or, or basically to try and prevent fraud on an existing credit card account. And the fraud alert is really intended only for new accounts. Um, it's to prevent new credit fraud. It, it has nothing to do with your existing accounts. And so that was a, a misuse of the fraud alert, um, but it did happen. So I think it's worth mentioning just from the perspective of as creditors and consumers get educated about what fraud alerts are supposed to do and what they are not supposed to do, this is clearly in the category of uh, things that should never happen. Right, because the fraud alert itself, Bo, as you know, says don't issue new credit without calling me first at this number. Let me go back a little bit about the um, what the difference between a fraud alert and a credit freeze is, because uh, both in California and in Texas, where you are, in many places across the state, we allow credit freezes now. So people say to me, Mari, you know, what is the difference between a, a fraud alert and a credit freeze? Um, in fact, I saw something, an error on a state uh, website, which confused the two. So I just want to kind of be clear. A fraud alert is a little note that goes on your credit profile that says, don't issue credit without calling me first at this number. If you apply for credit or if you're a potential fraudster applies for credit in your name with your social security number, the creditor has a right to get your credit report and review it to see if they want to issue your credit. If they see a fraud alert, what Bo was saying um, under the law, that the creditor is supposed to call you. And they would see that credit report first, and then they're supposed to call you. And if they don't, then they're really in violation of the law. But as he also said, there's really no punishment if they don't. But but the good news was is what you found out in your study is they are following us. Now, the credit freeze, let me explain what that is. A credit freeze allows you to actually lock up your credit report so that if a creditor, if your fraudster, tries to get credit in your name, tries to apply for a Chase card or a Visa card, and you've got a freeze on your credit profile, they won't be able to even see the credit report. So they won't see an alert that says don't issue credit. They just won't get it. And if they can't get it, they won't issue the credit to the fraudster and they won't issue it to you unless you give them a password and in our state, for example, in California, it takes three days to put one on, three days to get off, although there's legislation that is pending to make it 15 minutes. And, and I think it is New Jersey and some other states are trying to do that. At the same time, federally, the, the feds are trying to pass legislation that says that you cannot get a freeze unless you're a victim, whereas in California, you can put a freeze on what. What Bo is saying in terms of trying to put a fraud alert on, if that thing works, it's a lot less burdensome. Isn't that the case, Bo? If you can put a fraud alert and say, don't issue credit without calling me first, at least you don't have to go through the rigmarole of, of um, freezing and unfreezing, which can take time and be an extra burden in trying to get credit or a house or an apartment. Exactly. When we looked at, when we began building our product, we looked at both you know, which platform do we, or which set of laws and mechanisms do we want to build on? And we chose the fraud alert exactly for those reasons. Um, it's much more flexible. It does, I think, what you really want it to do, which is, um, you know, require the creditor just to call you before you open an account. It's a very basic common sense mechanism. And um, it still allows for the, the great wonder of instant credit, keeps the economy running, keeps consumers buying. 
um, so that you can get the things you need to do quickly, but it also uh, prevents the fraud. So that, that was one dimension. We just felt like that worked better than having to call a bureau, wait three days, then tell your creditor, okay, now you can pull my file, then call the credit bureau back, tell them to put the freeze back on, and then you're protected again. That seemed uh, very cumbersome, and you know, we know from other security experiences, if you, you know, if you were to open your file and then you get your new car, um, it's very likely the consumer would forget to go back and actually relock or refreeze the file. Um, so a number of problems there, but frankly, the bigger issue, you know, we can support either of those, but the bigger issue is that the credit freeze is not available to everyone. Um, it's available in how many states, did you say? Well, it, it, there's different levels in different states, but, for example, in California, you can put a freeze on if you're a concerned consumer. You don't have to be a victim, and it's free for victims, but it costs $10 to freeze and $10 to thaw. So that's $30 if you're talking about the three major credit bureaus, $30 to freeze and $30 to, to thaw it out. So that's also a big expense, whereas the fraud alert is, is um, you know, gratis. It doesn't cost you any money to do it. So that's one of the problems is if the fraud alert was really working all the time, we wouldn't need the freeze is really the bottom line. And and that's the, that's the problem is it's not working all the time. And you sure, your survey showed that it didn't work because of the credit bureaus, and then occasionally it didn't work because the creditors weren't following the law either. Um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about what your your product was. I mean, we're not trying to sell it here, but just to help people understand it. Normally, <clears throat> we tell people that. It's a good idea that if you're going to place a fraud alert to protect yourself from fraud, if you're worried about fraud, um, or if you've been a potential victim, or you are a victim, that you place your cell phone number on there so that they can call you because most people aren't home. If you're out shopping for a car on Sunday and you're not home, they can't call you. But you have a really unique idea of how you can kind of... to shield the the potential victim, you want to tell what your product is all about and and how it works. Sure. The when we looked at the fraud alert, um, again, we thought it was a very sane and practical mechanism and could be a very effective mechanism. And if you could add a little bit of technology to it um, to automate some of these things to make it even more convenient and add some security to it, because it does have some uh, exposure points. We, we looked at that and said, you know what, we can, we can add those pieces that are missing and I think have a very, very effective system that's going to work really well for consumers, well for credit bureaus, and well for creditors. So the pieces that we add to the fraud alert um, is, number one, just the basic issue of setting and confirming that the fraud alert gets set properly. So we've obviously uh, enhanced our product around those capabilities, uh, given what we've learned, but we want to automatically set it for you. Uh, again, we're providing a software product that does this uh, for you. And so it will set it. It will confirm that it is set correctly. And if it's not able to set it correctly, it will then inform you. So you will at least know that there is a problem. You'll know which bureau you have the problem at and then give you the instructions on what you need to do to go uh, uh, be able to resolve that. The second piece it does is Well, let's kind of go back it. on that, and, and let me give, like, an example of what happened with me. We tried to do it with me. You, I, we, I gave you the information for you to... Um, call in and and set up my fraud alert, and then you came back and you said, you know what, there's a problem. D- did you move? 
And I said, no. And you said, well, is your name changed? No, because there has to be an exact match. Am I correct with that, Bo? That's correct. It's typically the, the alert gets set based on the name being the same, the social security number being the same, date of birth, and the numeric portion of the address. And if any of those things, there's, uh, you know, data that doesn't match identically, that's typically what causes the fraud alert to fail, and the Bureau doesn't set it. They assume that, ah, this is a different person. So in your case, yours is actually uh, in the mystery bucket. Um, (laughs) We have a a number of these where uh, clearly you were able to show us the credit header information in each of your files was, in fact, identical and correct. Yes. Um, So we have no idea why yours cannot be set. So it's going to take some investigation and, frankly, some help from the credit bureaus to um, uh, to resolve that. Now, I think that's really an important point because, you know, we found out from the United States Public Interest Research Group that 70% of credit reports have errors, and about 25% of those are enough to keep you from even getting a job or a house or a credit card. So um, the bureaus really are going to have to kind of pull it together if because we're relying on them for accurate information, and especially when we want to do some kind of protective program like yours, we should be able to use it if the credit profile is correct. And um, a lot of people don't realize when they move, like I have some clients right now that are moving, and I'm telling them, hey, immediately notify the credit bureaus as soon as you move and show them the identification so that if you want to get credit, it isn't going to hold you up. Or I have clients who are getting a divorce and they're going back to their maiden name or they're just getting a divorce and they don't want their their file mixed with their ex-spouse. So I tell them, notify them that, you are no, that that's not your spouse anymore. So I think what you found out in your survey is you better make sure that your data is accurate, correct? Absolutely. That's the key to these protections working. Yeah. So then, so is- yeah, so let's go back to... What happens? So let's say um, I am able to you get you to set my fraud alert. I love the part that comes next. What are you going to do for me as the consumer then once it's set? You put the, a cell phone number that's not mine, right? Well, we actually put a, uh, we plant a, a contact number in your credit file, but that contact number actually comes to uh, Devix. And so what it does, we're trying to add some security and some automation to the process here. Um, One of the exposure points or the weak spots of the fraud alert is the notion that you as a consumer who set a fraud alert should expect calls from people claiming to be at banks or creditors um, wanting to open up loans. And they need to identify, they need to verify your identification. Um, we've seen many scams over the years, and um, you know, on email, on the phone, and, and back and forth, where people will use those kind of situations to extract information from uh, from consumers, um, and then commit fraud against them. So we think that's an exposure point. And so what we're doing is providing a contact number where the creditor actually calls to Debix's computers, and the creditor is told that you know, thank you for calling our fraud alert clearing line. Um, we ask them a series of questions to understand what it is that they are, um, what type of loan they're trying to uh, open. And then our system calls you. So we tell our customers, do not talk to people who call you out of the blue and uh, tell you that they're a bank and they need to identify you. Um, If they don't call through Debix, um, tell them to call through Debix. So we both screen creditors on the front end to make sure that they're valid creditors. And then when they come through, the user experience is your phone will ring. 
So if you let's let's take an example of if you're in an auto dealership. So you're buying a car, right? You're at uh, you know Johnson Dodge. You fill out the application. They submit it. It goes off to a bank. A bank pulls your credit report. They score it. They decide to offer you the loan. They then see the fraud alert. Then their computer is instantly going to message Debex to say, you know, please uh, verify the identity of this consumer. So your phone then rings. So the consumer's phone, you're standing right there at the desk. Your phone rings. The first thing you'll hear is your own voice. Uh, so this is what we call a voice key. You'll hear your, us play you, your voice, a message that you have pre-recorded with us, and that's a secret that only you and Debex know. That way you know that it is, in fact, Debex that's calling you. And then we'll simply play you the information that was required uh, by law for the account to be opened. And so for the account to get open, your physical phone has to be present. So your phone needs to be there. And then you have to provide your pen if you want to approve the account. So a phone call comes in, you hear your own voice, you know it's secure. You then put in your pen to approve the order. Now, if you're at home watching television and someone else is trying to buy a car in your name, your phone is going to ring. And you're going to hear this is, you know, Bill at, uh, at Johnson Dodge and uh, we'd like to approve that car loan for you. You know, enter your pen to approve it or press star to stop this. And in that case, you're on the couch, you're not buying that car. With a push of a button on your telephone, you stop the fraud cold. The message goes back to the creditor. Yeah, and I love that, Bo, because, you know, you were talking about people calling you and they're really fraudsters or or it's what we call pretext calling, which is, you know, pretending to be someone else to get information from you. And one of the things that that I recommend in my books, you know, Safeguard Your Identity, we said never, ever give information to someone who calls you. Always be the one when you initiate the call to the company that you know, the number you know, then you can provide information. But don't talk to someone who calls you. So this is what I really liked about your program is that it takes that that fear of of a fraudster calling me, and I'm afraid to talk to them. So that, I really think, was um, very brilliant. Let me give you a, a great example. I got a call, oh gosh, about eight months ago from what they said was the IRS. And they said, um, you did a pay-by-phone for your estimated payments, didn't you? And I of course, being a former victim of identity theft, but I was scared to say anything. I said, who, you know, who, what are you calling from? You know, <laughs> anyway, she said, well, this is the IRS. And, and somehow your social security number um, got mixed up with somebody else's on your phone call when you made your uh, estimated payment. So it didn't go through. It went through on somebody else's. And I said, you know, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to call the number that I know for the IRS, <laughs> what is your name? Give me your name. Give me your, um, you know, your number for your employee number or something, and I will call and find out if you're a real person. <laughs> you know, I think she was getting very offended, but she, you know, she gave me that, and and then I did call the number I knew, and it was true. But you know, we're also paranoid these days about pretext calling. We've heard about Oprah Winfrey becoming a victim of identity theft from pre- pretext calling and you know lots of these uh, very very wealthy people found out that Merrill Lynch and others had revealed information and transferred money. So, you know, if we can do something where we don't have to um, verify the person that we're talking to, I think it's a great idea. Uh, unfortunately, we have to start thinking of phone calls the same way we think of emails. Um, 
Five years ago, we all trusted our emails. Uh, now, none of us do. We know you know, never f- provide any information back um, to any email that comes in from a financial institution. Right, um, we've talked to, yeah, about we've talked about phishing. Unfortunately, you and I know this, but you know, there's a lot of people that still fall prey to these authentic-looking emails, and they, you know, they click on that link, and then they get hooked. But no, you're right. A lot more people are becoming more aware of, but the of the phishing, right? Yeah, I think you know the best defense and the best opportunity for educating these consumers is to be able to say some very simple statement. And in the email example, uh, the banks came up with a very easy example. You know, we will never send you an email asking you to verify personal information. Right. So you know, it's a very clear, you know, statement that everybody can understand. Of course, if you've never heard it or you just don't think about these things, you might still make a mistake. But most of us are able to understand that and follow that particular guidance. In the case of the fraud alert, we have this unique circumstance where we're actually telling the consumer you know, the purpose of the fraud alert is not to make sure the accounts you're trying to open are safe. Right. It's to make sure the accounts the thief is trying to open uh, get prevented. You have no idea of where the thief is trying to open the account. And so by definition, the person who's going to call you is going to be someone you don't know, an organization you don't know. So you get a call from someone who says they're at the Bank of Wyoming and they're about to open a second mortgage on your house. Um, how are you going to verify that that really is the Bank of Wyoming? And the answer is, at least in our, our world, our answer is, look, you know, any calls that come about opening new accounts to verify your fraud alerts, they're going to come through Debix. You're going to hear your own voice. There's going to be no opportunity for someone to ask you questions they shouldn't be because we've automated it. And all you're going to hear is you know, the name of the person in the organization, the type of loan they're trying to open, and then you can either approve it because you know that you're the one who submitted that application, or you press one button and you stop it because you know that you're not the person who filled out that application. That's all that needs to occur in that phone. And by putting the computers in between where you're not actually talking to a human, there's no opportunity for someone to fish you. And, uh, again, I think we can have some pretty good success training people that uh, if the call doesn't come through Devix, um, don't talk to them. Right, right. No, I, I think you're right. And I have, you know, I've had a fraud alert on my credit reports since you know 1996 and i've and i've gotten some of those calls and most of them have been many of them have been did you open this account or didn't you and then that's fine but some of them have gone further and i and i do get scared so you're right and and then i say this is all i'm going to tell you is yes i applied or no i didn't because you don't even know if somebody who's a dirty insider knows that you applied and then the, yeah oh yeah i applied for that one and then they start asking you more questions so I think that the more that you can avoid that kind of having to answer questions, even when you trust somebody, um, it's unfortunate that we live in a society like this, isn't it, Bo? I mean, we've, you and I have talked about this before. The bad guys are taking advantage of this really crazy system. It is, it is unfortunate, but, uh, you know, this comes along every few years, and we always find ways to get through it, and uh, hopefully we're providing some of those answers. But uh, there's some real simple ways to do it, and, you know, the case you just gave of a, a dirty insider we had a couple of uh, consumers who you know, received phone calls, and they got a very extensive list of questions trying to verify their identity. It wasn't just, did you apply for this, yes or no. Um, it was, you know, you need to prove who you are. And so they were asking things like birth dates uh, and other information. In one case, we had someone asking for credit card account numbers. Wow. I need to know your credit card account numbers. Tell me that. 
And unfortunately, people, uh, consumers, will fall for those kind of things, particularly if you're scared that a loan is about to be opened and your credit's about to be ruined. Um, they're likely to fall for such things. So, again, by putting a, a, you know, a, a trusted third party in between you and these creditors that you don't know, um, we just limit the possibility for bad things to happen, and uh, that seems to make sense. The other dimension is just being able to increase the convenience. You know, we, we like instant credit. We're all for it. But I'd like to have secure instant credit. So right now, most of these phone calls around fraud alerts are very manual processes. And so, uh, you know, your account has to get in front of somebody who can then pick up the phone and call you, and often that takes some time. Um, the thing that we're providing to creditors is we're saying, look, creditor, you can just send us the request. We'll get it cleared. We'll get it cleared instantly. Um, if the consumer is available, it will be cleared instantly. If the consumer is not available, you don't have to play telephone tag with them. As soon as the consumer calls back into our service and authenticates the transaction, then we will get back to you at that point. So we're trying yeah, to provide so if value. So if they have their cell phone off because they're in a movie or something with their kids, right, then you don't have to worry that you're going to miss that call. It'll go to you, and then you'll call back the consumer later. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, and and our assumption is that if you're sitting in a movie with your kids, you're probably not, you know, you don't have a tremendous amount of urgency about this loan getting open. <laughs> right. Right? So right. If, if it's an urgent situation, you know, you're standing at the auto dealer or you're at the mortgage, you know, signing. Right. Uh, right. Any of those kind of places, you know, you're at Target and you're trying to get these goods, you know, you're going to have your phone with you. Uh, yes. That call is going to come instantly and you can clear it. If we are not able to reach you, uh, your battery's dead, your phone is off, whatever, then uh, the system simply leaves you a message, and then you call Debix, and uh, we queue up the messages for you, and uh, then you respond to it. So pretty, uh, pretty simple way to, to get through that. And again, by providing some value both to the creditors who want this stuff to happen fast, they want to do it securely, um, they like what we're doing, consumers seem to like what we're doing, we're resetting those alerts so you have continuous protection, and we're giving you that, uh, that secure phone call so that you don't have to worry about the, you know, Camps. Right. You know, I wanted to just talk briefly because we're getting close to the end, but um, I thought what was interesting is when you, in this study that you did with the fraud alert setting, that um, the failure by the Bureau, that Equifax seemed to fail 25% of the time, Experian 15% of the time, and TransUnion 4% of the time. So what that tells me is if you want to pr place a fraud alert, call TransUnion, right? <laughs> At least call them first, and and then you're you're more likely to get all at least one or two, possibly three. But at least is is that what am I am I reading this right, Bo? That if if I want to protect myself the most, I better at least put TransUnion first and let them try and reach the other two. Well, we actually like the way TransUnion does it, um, but it actually doesn't imply. You know, we we did this through a standard process. So we did everybody the same way, and what we did was actually started with Experian. So we would set the alerts at Experian and then have them propagate to the other two bureaus. So these results are a bit biased um, by that fact. So I, I think, see. I think yeah. it's fair to say that TransUnion does a great job, um, and they also allow you to put in the most uh, consumer contact information. Right. They allow you to do a daytime number plus extension, uh, an evening number plus extension, so lots of opportunities for the creditor to um, to get in touch with you, which I think is great. Um, the other two bureaus uh, provide a lot less um, opportunity for the creditors to be able to get in touch with you. So, yeah, you know, kudos to And you know to what else TransUnion. they do? TransUnion also, one of the things I like about TransUnion is they will send you your free credit report. And I want to get back to this. 
the first time you set a fraud alert, you're entitled to a free credit report. This is on top of your once-a-year free credit report from the three major agencies. This is not at annualcreditreport.com where you can get your free credit report under the new law. You can get one for free from each of the credit bureaus at annualcreditreport.com. But if you if you call for a fraud alert, you can get your free credit report. And um, the good thing about TransUnion is they do like the old system, like when I was a victim, which is when you place a fraud alert, they will send you your free credit report right away, whereas the other two bureaus, they'll send you a letter, and then you have to ask for your free credit report at that time. So that's, um, I think you're right. I think TransUnion is more uh, consumer-friendly uh, in terms of use and getting things to you in a more timely manner. You know, I thought what, one of the other things that was interesting is you talked about the source of the failure. You had a little list here. Um, you want to go over that with us? What was the, the biggest source of failure of being able to set a fraud alert? Yeah, it, it goes back to the, the old problem that the credit bureaus have had forever, which is data data being inconsistent. And so the number one reason that fraud alerts failed was because the address was not consistent. So we got to the point where, um, you know, in the software registration, if someone clicks the box that, yes, they've moved in the last two years, uh, we can be pretty confident that their fraud alert is going to fail. Right. So if you're moving around a lot, uh, you're going to have problems. you got to um, tell the, that's another good, that, that was such helpful information, that as soon as you move, you better tell the credit bureaus or you aren't going to be able to get that car or that job, right? Exactly, exactly. The next largest uh, problem was for uh, date of birth. And that was mine. They had um, December 1st versus December 9th on mine, on one of mine. Yeah, so that was a problem. Yep. And, and that's not one? that's not even me because I know my birthday, but <laughs> but you know it's like when you either somebody can't read your writing or some data entry person gets it wrong. Yeah, the the you have to remember the way that the credit bureaus can get to their data is not by calling you and asking you what your birthday is. Uh, they get it when creditors submit an application in your name. So your data is only as good as the last clerk that filled out the files and sent it in yeah. uh, to the credit bureau. Right. And, they try to do some things to uh, to prevent that problem from happening, but uh, but clearly it, it still happens at a higher rate than uh, any of us would like. The other uh, very clear problem was anyone who has a, a generation suffix at the end of their name, junior, senior, first, second, third, fourth. Um, I think that's one of the things that as people fill out credit applications, uh, those change a lot or just don't get included or dropped. And so that causes uh, tremendous confusion. Yeah, they call that. Yeah, that they call that a merged file. We see a lot of that, and then of course there's also the bad guy, the bad son, or the bad daughter, or the bad mom that you know that actually takes the identity and pretends to be John Senior so that they could get that mortgage. So that was that was another one that what I thought was interesting because we do see a lot of that. Yep, friendly fraud. <laughs> and then, and then there's still uh, we have 32 percent of these that we still don't understand why they failed and yeah. have not been able to uh, uh, to get them cleared. So most of them are fairly easy to get straightened out. You go look at the address, date of birth, generation, name, and uh, and once you figure out which one is inconsistent, you can get the fraud alert set and then go about trying to correct your record. Um, but there are still a large number of these that. Um, you know, are just baffling to us. We've tried everything we can do from the outside, and uh, and it is going to take some coordinated help from uh, I think the FTC and the credit bureaus to uh, to solve these problems. 
Um, it's unacceptable just to say, well, you know, some percent of you just can't get one. Um, we all have the right to get one, so we have to figure out how to make that possible. Bo, you know, we only have about a minute left, but I, I want to thank you for doing that survey because I think it has been very revealing. Even though it was a small study group, I think that what you found out was so revealing and so helpful to consumers, and it helps us to go back to the credit bureaus and say, hey, look at what's going on, uh, have the FTC help them do it, and uh, so you did a great service. Um, would, I'd like to have you give your website, and um, and then thank you so much for coming. Can you do that, Bo, and any just final quick thing you want to say? Yeah, absolutely, and so... I, we're happy to have done the survey, and thank you and um, you know Beth Givens and Jay Foley for all the help in, uh, in putting this together and participating. I want to make it clear that uh, this study doesn't end here. Um, the sort of a byproduct of our system now, we, again, we used our system to monitor the test and to, uh, to measure the test. Anyone who comes through our system and uses it um, will become, you know, essentially will be able to monitor and see what happens and what doesn't, both on does your fraud alert get set properly and what is the creditor compliance. So this will become a, a real-time dashboard for all of us um, that hopefully will help the creditors, will help the credit bureaus, the FTC, and help, uh, um, you know, the privacy folks in all of your efforts uh, in terms of actually knowing what's going on with the system so that we can all fix it. And we can um, all protect ourselves. Well, we have to go, but I want people to go to debix.com, and I want to thank you, Bo Holland, the CEO of debix.com, for all of your great work and for sharing your your wonderful study, and you'll come back and let us know what happens next year, right? Absolutely. Okay, thank you for joining us all the way from Texas. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Uh, to learn more about our wonderful guests, go to www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, uh, Jake, for being a terrific engineer filling in. And we will uh, see you next Wednesday on Privacy Piracy. This is Mari Frank, and we hope you'll join us. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.